So Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Well, thank you very much, Emma, for that reading. And um, I think after a reading like that, we should pray for God's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard words of Jesus, hard for us to hear, and we ask for your help by your Spirit that we might take them and receive them and let them do us good. We pray this so that we might learn what is valuable, what is true, what is good, in this world and in your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me uh, introduce you to one of your greatest enemies. Not Vladimir Putin or poverty, not aerated concrete or COVID or cancer, not even death itself. I'm speaking of an enemy worse than death, something that if not conquered now will lead you after death to the worst possible consequence a person can face. The enemy I'm talking about has been given the modern name of status anxiety. Status anxiety uh, is a term that was coined by sociologist Alain Dubotton in his book of the same name. It also happens to be, as I learned when I googled it, a brand of ladies' fashion handbag. Uh, But that has got absolutely no relevance to us at all uh, this morning. It's quite a clever name for a fashion brand, though, isn't it? Status anxiety. Well, sociologist Alain Dubotton, that's Botton with an N in case you're writing it down, (laughs) explains status anxiety as originating in a basic human appetite 
a fundamental hunger that sets in once the primal need for food and shelter have been met. It is, he says, the quest to be recognized as somebody. The quest to be recognized as somebody. Status, anxiety. And so it is the constant tension or fear of being perceived as a nobody by the society in which you live. Now, whether or not you've come across that phrase before, I think we all recognize it because it is, of course, just a modern name for the ancient sin of pride. It was, if you think about it, the proud grasping of status that led the first man and woman to sin back in the Garden of Eden. And it's this same pride, this quest to be somebody that will lead you to hell if you let it. And this is the enemy that Jesus is warning us of in this passage this morning. And as well as warning us, he's going to give us the secret to its defeat. And the secret to its defeat is to follow him in his descent into utter humility and to become a nobody in the eyes of the world. Well, you'll find uh, three headings on the outline uh, in the opening of the notice sheet, and I hope they'll help us to follow Jesus' logic. First, he is asked a question, and then he gives an answer to the question, and the rest of the passage is unpacking the consequences of the answer for ourselves and for others. So let's look at the question first in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And as soon as we read those words, we know, don't we, that the disciples haven't got it yet. After everything Jesus has said so far in this gospel about sacrifice and service, about picking up your cross and following him, the very fact they ask this question reveals that they are still thinking in worldly terms, still living within the normal human narrative of winners and losers of somebodies and nobodies. They are still enslaved to the status anxiety that made Adam and Eve fall in the garden. And yet, I want to suggest that the disciples are not completely wrong to ask the question. There is actually some logic to their thinking that is right. And the key to seeing this, and in fact the key to the whole passage, is not to take the passage in isolation, but to do what we must always do if we're to read the Bible clearly and accurately, which is to look at it in context. Because notice verse 1 begins, at that time. And Matthew clearly wants us to understand that the disciples' question has not come out of the blue, but has been prompted by something that has just happened. It's been prompted by the little section at the end of chapter 17. And this, in turn, prompts the whole teaching of chapter 18. Well, what has just happened? We'll just glance back to 17, 24, 27. And if you were here just before Easter, you may remember it's that strange little passage that only Matthew of the four Gospels records about a request to pay the temple tax and then this miraculous provision of the temple tax by the means of a fish with a coin in its mouth. 
It's actually a wonderful little episode. It's strange and it's surprising. But there are two things that we saw in that section that we need to remember now. First, we saw in that section the reality of two kingdoms in overlap. A big theme in Matthew's gospel. Uh, There is on the one hand the kingdom of earth. Kingdom of men, as Jesus sometimes calls it, the kingdom that we can see, implied by G- Peter's question, uh, by Jesus' question, sorry, in seventeen twenty-five, and then, sorry, that's the kingdom of heaven, the second kingdom, implied by Jesus' question in seventeen twenty-five. Jesus has come to bring about the kingdom of God, which Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven. And so we have this situation of overlap. There is the kingdom of men, the kingdom on earth, and there is the kingdom of heaven. And in Jesus, they overlap because Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God. And so the disciple of Jesus finds himself or herself with a foot in two kingdoms. We are still part of the kingdom on earth. We still pay our taxes, for example. But our true home, our loyalty, our hope, our destiny, our status is in the kingdom of heaven. That's the first thing we saw. The second thing we saw in 1724 to 27 is what that status in the kingdom of heaven is. If Jesus is the king of the kingdom then his followers, it turns out, are princes in the kingdom, as he explains to Peter in 25 to 26 of chapter 17. And so there is a greatness in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, there is a hierarchy in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew has taught this several times through his gospel. In 5.19, Jesus spoke of greater and lesser members of the kingdom. He did the same in 11.11 when he shockingly says that the least in the kingdom will be greater than John the Baptist. And in 19.28, he will speak of the 12 disciples ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. And so even if the disciples' question is mixed, can we at least see the logic of it? If Jesus is the king of the kingdom... And if that kingdom, as all kingdoms do, have greater and lesser members, and if they are sons of the king, then who will be the greatest in the kingdom? What will their status be? What will their position be in the kingdom? Where will they be in the order of things? In fact, this logic is so clear that in the original Greek, unfortunately not translated in our version, the disciples ask, who therefore is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so I think the first surprise for us in this passage is that Jesus does not dismiss the question, but he actually answers it very clearly in the passage that follows. To seek greatness in the kingdom is not wrong. There is a way of being great in the kingdom of heaven. There is a greatness, a status in the kingdom of heaven that we should pursue. And so if you're a Christian this morning, Your aim in life, I would suggest, is to pursue greatness in the kingdom of heaven. If you're one of these people that have kind of used September as a bit of a fresh start, you know, maybe you've made some new resolutions, you you know, you're on the diet and your your to-do list is all neat and tidy and your desk is sorted and all those kind of things that we like to do at this time of year, or at least some of us do. 
then how about this as a goal for the year? To pursue greatness in the kingdom of heaven in the year ahead. The problem is that that pursuit is the exact opposite of what we tend to think greatness is. And that brings us to his answer in 2 to 4. Like all good teachers, Jesus is not averse to using the occasional visual aid to illustrate his teaching. And so verse 2, he called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus' words here are very clear, aren't they, and uncompromising. Look at it. Unless you change, you will never. Entry into the kingdom, he says, is conditional upon a moment of change. We might call this a conversion, a rebirth, a deliberate change of identity. You have to become like little children. And the importance of this is underlined at the end of the passage, isn't it? As we see the cost of not doing so. Not making this change will lead you into hell. And so, of course, the obvious question is, what is it about little children that we must become like? Is it, for example, some quality of childlike innocence? Is it that little children, as one commentator put it, are, and I quote, untempted to self-advancement? Well, if you think like that, can I suggest you have not met a real child? (laughs) Go and volunteer in baby grubs or mini grubs or come to Thursday crash for a couple of weeks and we'll soon knock that sentimental nonsense out of you, untempted to self-advancement. Others suggest that it might be the child's trusting nature that is on view. Another suggestion is the teachability of children, or the dependence, or some kind of innate childlike humility that Jesus wants to emulate. But if you think like that, you need to meet some real children. Just like adults, not all children are always trusting, or teachable, or humble. Now, the fact is, if we are looking for some kind of subjective virtue or quality in the behavior or character of small children, we have missed the point. The point is not what children are like or how they behave at all. Look again at verse 2. Try and picture it. He called a little child and had him stand among them. So the expression little child suggests not a baby but a very small child, what we might call a toddler. And by standing this little tiny child in the middle of this circle of 12 grown men, or perhaps more than 12 were there, Jesus is creating a striking picture, isn't he? A powerful visual aid to accompany his teaching. Here are the disciples, grown men, adults. And in the middle of them, is a little child. And Jesus says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to become like that. What does he mean? The simple point is you've got to become small. Very, very simple. 
You've got to become small. If you want to be great, you've got to become small. And so verse 4, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, is not as this child is humble, but whoever humbles himself to the status of this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And of course, this would have been obvious to his first audience, because in that culture, children had no status. Children were nobodies in that culture. 2,000 years of, of Christian history and our respect for the person and humanity and so on have, have elevated children, but in first century culture, they were nobody. And so if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to become small. You have to kill your status anxiety. You have to kill pride if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is good news, but it's challenging. On the one hand, can you see that this is very good news? Because it means, of course, that anybody can enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter what your status in the world is. It doesn't matter what your achievement is. It doesn't matter what your, your sense of self-worth is. It doesn't matter what your weaknesses are, your sins, your faults, your failings, your ethnic background, your social background, your educational achievement, because the kingdom of God is actually for nobodies, which means it is for anybody. And what this means is that the Christian church is the most inclusive organization in the world. Our society loves to think of itself as inclusive, doesn't it? But when the chips are down, somebody is always excluded. So we want to promote women's rights, but we, we end up excluding men. We want to get rid of racism, so we end up branding all white people as racist. It's like the RAF, you know, they try to, to kind of balance the books a little bit, have more women and more people from ethnic groups, and so they ended up having no white men recruited for a whole year. As soon as we try to advantage one group, we marginalize the other, don't we, as a society? But the Christian church is truly inclusive because the bar to entry is no status at all. And so at Prayer Tea this evening, we're going to be thinking a little bit about how to reach some groups who are underrepresented in our church, but are here in our city, some unreached nobodies in the city. Who are they? And I know there are people in this room this morning who have not yet committed themselves to following Jesus. And it might just be because you have a sneaking suspicion that there is some qualification you need, some bar you need to jump over. And you think you're not good enough. And so the good news for you is if you think like that, you qualify immediately. Because the only qualification you need is to recognize that you have none. To know that you are a nobody. And this is a big theme of Jesus, isn't it? In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. All you have to do is acknowledge that you are spiritually, morally, socially a nobody, and the doorway of the kingdom is open to you. 
But of course, as well as being good news, that, that is also very challenging, isn't it? Because it means you cannot enter the kingdom and you cannot be great in the kingdom unless you become a nobody. And that is hard to do, especially if you are a somebody in the world. See, our society is built around status. Alain de Botton was quite right about that. Status is the currency of our relationships, isn't it? As soon as you meet somebody, what's the third question you ask after the, you know, their name and where they live and maybe their family circumstances? So what do you do, we say? Meaning what occupies you nine to five, Monday to Friday? And we ask that question not because I am interested in your working life, but because I need to know how to put you on the ladder of society. Are you a dinner lady or a doctor? Are you a bricklayer or a lawyer? Are you a parking attendant or a professor? Where are you on the social ladder? Well, think about the typical motivational speech. You know, if you do this and this, you can be like me whether it's academic achievement, career success, sporting fame or fortune, or just fulfilling your dreams. If you work really hard, you can be successful. And in fact, Alain de Botton, who I mentioned before, he says that actually the currency of all motivational speakers is to induce in us status anxiety. I mean, how many school leavers' assemblies or speech days have you've been to where you've heard the message, well, you know, actually, let me tell you, you are all going to be pretty ordinary you're going to be pretty ordinary, you live in an ordinary town, you're at an ordinary school, you're going to get an ordinary job, and you might as well make the most of it. I would love to give a speech day talk like that, but I never get invited to do these things. And so to accept what Jesus is saying is to run the film script of your life in reverse, deleting every scene that is some kind of achievement until you arrive back in the toddler group. Financial security, delete that scene. Career advancement, gone. Academic achievement, gone. Social network, gone. Christian ministry achievements, deleted. Everything that makes you a winner in the eyes of the world must go because to see yourself as God sees you, a child with nothing to offer, is the only way into the kingdom. And as the rich young man in chapter 19 will demonstrate, this is very hard to do if you are a somebody. But it's essential that we do it. Because the only way into the kingdom is to make yourself as naked and as nothing as the day you were born. This is what Jesus means, isn't it? When he says you must be born again. And as we're going to sing at the end of our time this morning, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace, stained by sin to you I cry, wash me saviour or I die. So let me ask you, can you do that? Have you done it? 
Can you kill pride dead in order to get into the kingdom? Can you kill status anxiety? Can you identify as a nobody? If you can, Jesus says, you are great in the kingdom of God. And if not, then the consequences for you and for others are terrible. Which brings us to our next section, the consequences in five to nine. Now this is a slightly tricky passage to follow the argument of, and it's also deeply sobering. And the context, again, is going to help us. The context that we've just seen and also the context of next week's passage, 10 to 14. And in that context, there are three themes that are going to help us to make sense of this passage. Three themes, if you're taking notes. First is the little child or little ones. So Jesus takes the little child as an illustration, and then he he mentions it in verse 5, in verse 6. And again, if you just glance to next week's passage in verse 10 and 14. So all the way through this passage and here and next week, he is talking about the little ones, the little ones, the little people. And in the context, it becomes clear that while Jesus has used an actual child to illustrate his point, he is no longer speaking about actual children, but he's now talking as a category of disciples. The little ones are his disciples, those who have humbled themselves to the status of little ones to enter the kingdom of God. That's the first thing. The little ones are disciples of Jesus. The second theme we need to understand is this word, this phrase, cause to sin. You see it on the mountain, chapter 5, sin of lust. And we might assume he's doing the same here. So if you struggle with a particular sin, then then cut it off to enable you to enter the gate. But he's not doing that. The phrase cause to sin in this passage is a translation of a word that we've seen several times in Matthew. We last saw it in Matthew 17, 27, where it's translated offend. It's the scandalizo word, the scandalized word, and it means something very specific. It means to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in someone's path or to trip someone up. To trip them up to cause them to stumble, to stop them entering the kingdom of heaven. That is what it means, to cause to sin. And so the context makes it clear. Every time Jesus says in this passage, cause to sin, cause to sin, it is not to any sin. It is the particular sin of refusing to be a nobody. Got to be clear about that, and then the rest of the passage makes sense. The particular sin of status anxiety, of refusing to be a nobody. A sin of still living by the greatness narrative of the kingdom of men. So the little ones is the third, first theme. The second theme is causing to sin, is a stumbling block, refusing to be nobody. And the third theme the one that none of us want to think about, but Jesus lovingly makes us think about, is the punishment that results in indulging that sin and the reward that comes from killing it. 
So on one hand, there is what Jesus simply calls entering life in 8 and 9. This is the reward for killing pride. On the other hand, there is a fate worse than being drowned, verse 6. A future that attracts Jesus' cry of woe, verse 7. A future of eternal fire, verse 8, being thrown into hell, literally Gehenna, the permanently smouldering municipal rubbish dump outside the city, which Jesus used as another visual aid for final judgment. Well, if you can keep those things in mind, look with me at the consequences of Jesus' answer, firstly for others and then for ourselves, for others in verses 5 to 6. He says, whoever welcomes a little child like this welcomes me in my name. Sorry, like this, in my name, welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Throughout this chapter, Jesus is speaking of the church, the community of forgiven sinners who have in common their new identity as nobodies. And the point here is that if we see ourselves as nobodies, we can receive others as nobodies. Which is why the church is the most inclusive society on earth. In a Christian church, there will be no snobbery. There will be no hierarchy, no value, no in-crowd, no out-crowd, no factions, no competition, no status anxiety. But verse 6 In my pride, in my refusal to be a nobody, I can start making the church into a place of somebodies and so exclude them from the kingdom, hamper their progress in the kingdom. We can start turning the church into a place where you've got to be somebody to be accepted. And if we do that, he says, we may as well slam the door of the church on Jesus himself And the consequences will be terrible. And so here we have an important principle that our refusal to be a nobody, our sin in that sense, affects others' progress into the kingdom. A friend of ours spoke to us about his son-in-law, a young pastor who committed adultery, left his wife, and left the ministry. And our friend said it wasn't bad enough that he had broken his marriage vows and caused enormous pain to our friend's daughter. He said, you know, the real abomination is that he had made it a little bit easier for this woman and others to fall away from Christ. Your sin affects others. J.C. Ryle says in his commentary, On this passage, it is awful to think of the amount of harm that can be done by one inconsistent professor of religion. He gives a handle to the infidel. He supplies the worldly with an excuse for remaining undecided. He checks the inquirer after salvation. He discourages the saints. He is, in short, a living sermon on behalf of the devil. Well, that's the consequences for others. But in 7 to 9, he turns the focus from our attitude to others to ourselves. 
but he is still speaking of this specific sin of pride, the pursuit of greatness. And so look at it in that context, verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble, but such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. The point here is not about rooting out sin in general but to watch ourselves ruthlessly for that particular expression of pride that refuses to be a nobody. That's the problem. Well, what does this look like in practice? Well, let's think about the body parts that Jesus mentions. First, think about how your hand might cause you to stumble in this way. If we take the hand as a metaphor for doing, think about all the activities that fill your life, the goals and achievements that fill your day and your mind, including the good and worthy things on your to-do list, the various goals and projects that you set for yourself. How might those things cause you to stumble? Well, let me be honest, the test for me comes when a particular need interrupts my desire to get through my to-do list. I love the feeling the satisfaction of ticking things off, of reaching my goals. And when someone calls on my time or energy that means I'm not going to get through my list, I have to decide, am I going to be great? Am I going to achieve my goals? Or am I going to sacrifice my goals to serve someone else? Do you see the idea? And this is important, isn't it? Because if I cannot sacrifice my goals and my plans, then they have become an idol. They become a stumbling block. I'm pursuing my own greatness instead of descending into humility. And the point, I think, is that you cannot pursue your own greatness and the welfare of God's people at the same time. Well, that's my example. For others, I think it's the smartphone in your hand that is perhaps the challenge. That, that sort of desire to check your notifications first thing in the morning before you read God's word, for example. Because you must keep up your media profile. Or constantly distracted and bombarded with notifications, answering every email on a Saturday morning instead of playing with your children, posting that be real moment or Bible verse on Instagram. So you look great while refusing to serve in a way that nobody sees. You getting the idea? What about the foot? Well, if a hand is a metaphor for what you do, I think the foot is a metaphor for where you go, where you want to stand, your ambitions, your goals. Where do you want to get to? Do you want to get to the top of the pack? Do you want to stand with the somebodies and be a somebody yourself? The fact is you can't be a disciple of Jesus and be a somebody at the same time. And every moment of decision you have to make, your feet descend into the greatness of humility rather than ascend the ladder of worldly status. And I think this is challenging for everybody, but it's especially sobering for those in leadership, isn't it? 
Unless you're new to Christian things, you'll be aware that in the last few years, there have been some high-profile stumbling among Christian leaders. And I think this has often been the sin that has been the problem. The pursuit of greatness at the expense of the welfare of God's people. And so we've seen people building their own empires at the the sake of serving the local church. We've seen people bullied into submission so that the leader gets their agenda through. And this has disqualified them for ministry and caused others to stumble, made it harder for others to enter the kingdom. So I think it's a sobering passage for anybody in leadership, anybody with responsibility. Causes of stumbling will come, Jesus says, but you don't want to be the one through whom they come. You don't want to be the cause of someone else stumbling because you have pursued your greatness. The consequences will be terrible. And we need to understand that we cannot pursue the welfare of God's people and our own greatness at the same time. It cannot be done. Well, if the hand is about doing, the foot is about going, the eye is about your self-perception, isn't it? It's about what we would call in modern terms your identity. How you choose to see yourself in the world. Do you see yourself as important? Do you see yourself as somehow entitled? Do you somehow see other people as vehicles or obstacles to your ambitions? Do you look at people in terms of what they can do for you and your plans or what you can do for them? And I've said this before, but when you walk into a room, what are you thinking? Are you going into that room to impress people, to talk to the somebodies in that room? How will your choices as you walk into that room reveal whether you take Jesus seriously or not, whether you think of yourself as small or big? And so I want to conclude by acknowledging that this is all very challenging, isn't it? This is a hard teaching of Jesus because he's calling us, as Nathan said at the beginning, to think counter-culturally. Not just counter-culturally, but counter-intuitively. Do something that is almost inhuman, unnatural, if you like. He's calling us to a different mindset. Calling us to strip off everything that labels you a winner. To throw it overboard. To delete from the DVD of your life. To rip off your hero's medals and chuck them in the scrap heap. To open your trophy cabinet and chuck everything in the recycling to take down your certificates of achievement and put them through the shredder and actually place yourself at the bottom and we might ask how can we do this why should we do this where will the motivation come from where will the power come from Well, without spoiling Joe's thunder for next week's passage, we'll see that we can do this when we know that we are in fact not nobodies to God. 
But those who make themselves little in the eyes of the world are in fact precious somebodies in the eyes of God. And the knowledge that we are loved by our Heavenly Father is the thing that liberates us to give up greatness in the world. Knowing that we are, verse 10, seen by God in heaven, known by God in heaven, loved by God in heaven, frees us from the need to create our own significance, frees us from the slavery of status anxiety, because we already have the greatest status that we could possibly have in the universe, because we are children of God. And not only that, but I think even more importantly, we can do this because we know that Jesus himself has done it first. See, so think about Jesus' own career in the world. He gave up the status of the Son of God to be born in the nowhere town of Nazareth, to spend his life in poverty and obscurity, to give himself totally in service for others, to make himself tired, hungry, and then to die naked and bleeding on a Roman cross. The hands that could have put his ambitions first, he cut off. The feet that could have led him to worldly greatness, he cut off. The eye that might have enticed him to be somebody in the world, he gouged out. When Satan tempted him to be somebody, he chose to be a nobody. There never has and never will be a descent into humility like that, from the creator of the universe to the crucifixion. And so we can do it, and we must do it, because Jesus has done it. The world tells us to be someone. Leave us assembly. You can do it. Set your goal high. Jesus says, you can do it. Set your goal as low as you can. And follow me as I descend into greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And so by being nobody, you become great in the kingdom that matters and the kingdom that lasts. So let's pray that we'll be able to do that with God's help. Paul says in Philippians 2, although being in very nature God, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask your forgiveness for our pride. We ask your forgiveness for our quest to be somebody's. We ask for forgiveness for our anxiety that we might be proven to be important. And we thank you that Jesus called us to something far better, to know that we are precious to you.
and to take up our cross and follow him. To give up the pursuit of our own greatness and to rejoice instead in our status as your beloved children in the kingdom of heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name.